In February of this year, 2013, I was invited to be the speaker at a Bible conference held by Church of the Redeemer in Mesa, Arizona. The topic for that weekend was titled, Theistic Evolution, a Sinful Compromise. During that conference, I gave a series of four lectures. Uh, there was far more material than I could ever deal with in just four lectures. Since that time, I have expanded those initial four lectures into a total of 14 messages, of which you are listening to one of these. I encourage those who are listening to these messages to visit my publishing website at triumphantpublications.com, and you can read for free a written version based on all of these 14 messages. These messages are being compiled into a book titled Theistic Evolution of Sinful Compromise. The book is scheduled for release by mid-June of this year, 2013. My website will guide you on how to purchase a hard copy when available. But if you don't want to purchase a hard version, you can still read the transcript of the book by simply going to my website and clicking on the appropriate box titled Theistic Evolution of Sinful Compromise Transcript. Also on my publishing website, I've listed links to all the audio messages found on Sermon Audio under this general topic, Theistic Evolution and Sinful Compromise. May the Lord bless you as you listen to and or read about this very dangerous view that is gaining ground, unfortunately, among certain churches and institutions. This message is titled, The Scientific Failure of Evolution and Darwin's Great Admissions. In a previous message, I have emphasized and demonstrated that the war between creationism and evolution is one that is a clash of worldviews. I mentioned that neither creationism nor evolution fall within the purview of operational science per se, but falls within the category of historical science. Historical science deals with origins, while operational science, strictly speaking, is the application of the scientific method where theories must be testable, repeatable, observable, and falsifiable. I also mentioned that both creationists and evolutionists deal with the same biological and geological evidences, but one's presuppositions, worldview, act as the filters through which a scientist views the evidences. I stress that it is totally false and a clever but dishonest ploy of evolutionists to say that the issue is one of science versus faith, and we are the champions of science while creationists are unscientific, and the creationists are simply trying to foist upon the world their religious views, particularly those found in the Bible. No, the Bible between creationism and evolution is one of faith versus faith, and it's a battle between creation scientists and evolutionary scientists. For evolutionists, to boast that they deal with science, unlike the creationists, is a total falsehood and an insult to men who are just as educated as the evolutionists and who are bona fide scientists of the truest sense. Creationists often hold as many PhDs as evolutionists in their respective fields. Dr. Dwayne Gish, in his book, Creation Scientists, Answer Their Critics, states, quote, In fact, in the more than 300 debates that have been conducted throughout the United States and in other countries during the past 20 years, Christians have carefully avoided all references to religious concepts in literature and have based their arguments strictly on scientific evidence, 
such as fossil record, the laws of thermodynamics, the complexity of living organisms and probability relationships, etc. The fact that evolutionists themselves admit that creationists have won most of the debates does seem to be saying something important. End of quote. Now, while I do agree with Dr. Gish, his general thrust of the previous quote, I do want to stress that we should not think that appeals to the Bible should be avoided in debates with evolutionists. In the, real, in the realm of apologetics, that is the field dealing with the defense of the Christian faith, I do believe that the presuppositional approach is a superior methodology than the evidentialist approach. I discussed the differences in these two methodologies in a, in a sermon uh, that I preached at the Bible conference where I spoke on the sinful compromise of theistic evolution. The Bible does present us with the science of creation in the book of Genesis. There is nothing prohibitive about using the Bible directly. Now, I've mentioned that while the Bible is not a science textbook per se, it does speak without error about science matters, such as the days of creation in Genesis 1. Men did live for centuries before Noah's flood. Noah's flood was a true fact, and it did encompass the entire world. Why are these true? It's because the Bible says so. Hence, I presuppose these biblical statements as true, and I do not allow science to stand as some kind of independent authority over the Bible. In saying this, presuppositional apologetics does not negate the value and the use of scientific evidence. It simply states that there is a proper use for evidences in the defense of the faith. Probably the theologian most well-known for championing the presuppositional approach in the 20th century was Cornelius Van Til, who also wrote a book on theistic evidences, explaining their value. One of his students, Greg L. Bonson, also championed this approach, and in my opinion was the greatest apologist of the 20th century. The presuppositional uh, approach does use scientific evidences uh, in his defense of Christianity, but he uses it only as corroborative testimony, not foundational testimony. The difference between corroborative and foundational testimony is this. The evidentialist would say that the Bible is true because the scientific evidence demonstrates it to be, thereby making evidences as foundation to the veracity of the Bible. On the other hand, the presuppositionalist would say that because the Bible is true, the scientific evidences point to the, to the veracity of the Bible when it makes scientific statements. Thereby, scientific evidence is only corroborative. In other words, science rests upon the truth of the Bible, not vice versa. The facts of science are what they are because the Bible is true. Evidences must be interpreted, and the issue becomes which interpretation of the evidences is the most rational, which interpretation best reflects the world as we see it. In this regard, creationists win hands down. As I will demonstrate in the chapter, the admissions of Darwin and other evolutionists over the years is most illuminating and most destructive to the scientific plausibility of evolution being a so-called fact of science. Well, let's take a look at some of the great admissions made by Charles Darwin and Thomas Huxley. 
How confident was Darwin in his speculations? Not as certain as we might be led to believe. He wrote to his friend T.H. Huxley on December 2nd, 1860, which is just one year after the monumental publication of his Origin of Species. In this letter to Huxley, Darwin said, quote, I entirely agree with you that the difficulties on my notions are terrific. Yet having seen what all the reviews have said against me, I have far more confidence in the general truth of the doctrine than I formerly did. End of quote. And then consider this admission of Darwin to his friend Huxley. He said, quote, When we descend to details, we can prove that not one species has changed, i.e., we cannot prove that a single species has changed, nor can we prove that the supposed changes are beneficial, which is the groundwork of a theory, nor can we explain why some species have changed and others have not, end of quote. Now hold on here. I thought evolution was one of the most proven scientific facts of all time that is absolutely undeniable. At least that's what we're being told by evolutionists and theistic evolutionists who want us to reevaluate the Bible in light of the facts of evolution. As noted earlier, Thomas Huxley called himself Darwin's bulldog in the sense that he was the dominant figure in persuading society in the truths of Darwin's theories. Huxley said that Darwinism provided for us a working hypothesis that we were all seeking. But then even Huxley had his doubts. Huxley stated, quote, In my earliest criticisms of the origin, I ventured to point out that its logical foundation was insecure so long as experiments in selective breeding had not produced varieties which were far more or less infertile and that insecurity remains up to the present time. But with any and every critical doubt, with my skeptical or with my skeptical ingenuity could suggest, the Darwinian hypothesis remained incomparably more probable than the creation hypothesis, end of quote. For a time, Huxley took an agnostic view towards the notion of the transmutation of species. He said, quote, I took my stand upon two grounds. Firstly, that up to that time the evidence in favor of transmutation was wholly insufficient. And secondly, that no suggestion respecting the causes of transmutation assumed, which had been made, was in any way adequate to explain the phenomena. End of quote. I mentioned this quote in the previous mes- uh, a previous message, but it's worth repeating. In his presidential address at the British Association for 1870, Huxley made this astonishing concession. He said, quote, He discussed the rival theories of spontaneous generation in the universal derivation of life from preceding life and professed disbelief as an act of philosophic faith that in some remote period life had arisen out of inanimate matter though there was no evidence that anything of the sort had occurred recently, end of quote. In a letter to Charles Lyell, dated June 25, 1859, Huxley stated, I by no means supposed that the transmutation hypothesis is proven or anything like it, end of quote. 
what Huxley was admitting was that transmutation, the changing of one organism into another, is not proven. Then why believe in Huxley? It's because the alternative, the fixation of life forms, would point to divine special creation, which was totally unacceptable. Amazingly, though he was Darwin's bulldog, Huxley was at no time a convinced believer in the theory he so ardently publicized. What are some of the other revealing admissions of evolutionists about the theory of evolution? D.M.S. Watson was professor of zoology and comparative anatomy at the University College of London from 1921 to 1951. In his presidential address to the zoology section of the British Association, Watson said, quote, Evolution itself is accepted by zoologists not because it has been observed to occur or is supposed by logically coherent arguments, but because it does fit all the facts of taxonomy of paleontology and the geographic distribution, and because no alternative explanation is credible, end of quote. Oh, yes, the devil's gospel. What, da- uh, what Darwin called his own theories are not observable, nor can they be supported by coherent arguments. But the alternative God is absolutely unacceptable. The following admission of William Berryman Scott, once professor of geology and paleontology at Princeton University, is most telling. He rejected Darwinism, although he accepted the, the hypothesis of evolution. In the 1923 book titled The Theory of Evolution, we find Scott having said the following, quote, Personally, I have never been satisfied with Darwin's explanation is the rightful one. The one who approaches the problem from the study of fossils, the doctrine of natural selection does not appear to offer an adequate explanation of the observed facts. The doctrine in its application to concrete cases is vague, elastic, unconvincing, and seems to leave the whole process to chance. To be sure, this difficulty is impossible. No one ever saw the birth of the species, and thus we are shut up to drawing of inferences from what may be learned by comparison and experiment. On the other hand, if Darwin's hypothesis be rejected, there is, it must be frankly admitted, no satisfactory alternative to take its place. In short, while the evolutionary theory is buttresses, is buttressed by such a mass of evidence that nearly all men of science are convinced of its truth, no satisfactory and acceptable explanation of its causation has yet been devised. End of quote. Stephen Stanley, professor at John Hopkins University, made this observation on the basic premise of Darwin's natural selection theory. In an article published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science in 1975, Stanley stated, quote, Gradual evolutionary change, like natural selection, operates so slowly within established species that it cannot account for the major features of evolution. End of quote. The eminent French zoologist Pierre-Paul Grasset, though a committed evolutionist, made this great admission about Darwin's theory of natural selection when he stated, quote, The role assigned to natural selection 
in establishing adaptation, while speciously probable, is based on not one single sure datum. To assert that population dynamics give a picture of evolution in action is an unfounded opinion, or rather a postulate, that relies on not a single proved fact, showing that transformations in the two kingdoms have been essentially linked to changes in the balance of genes in a population area. I trust that my listener is understanding that these are incredible admissions from committed evolutionists. They all are admitting that it is not a proven thing, but the alternative is unacceptable. Utoyama, in his book Rejecting Creationism, nonetheless states, Creation and evolution between them exhaust the possible explanations for the origin of living things. Organisms either appeared on the earth fully developed or they did not. If they did not, they must, uh, they must have developed from pre-existing species by some process of modification. If they did appear in a fully developed state, they must indeed have been created by some omnipotent intelligence. End of quote. Kenneth Hugh, a committed evolutionist, is very critical of standard Darwinian evolution when he says, A casual perusal of the classic made me understand the rage of Paul Farabend in 1975. He considers science an ideology. Nevertheless, I agree with him that Darwinism contains wicked lies. It is not a natural law formulated on the basis of factual evidence, but a dogma reflecting the dominating social philosophy of the last century. End of quote. Whether it is Darwin himself, Thomas Huxley, or other committed evolutionists, their admissions that Darwin's theory cannot be scientifically proven is a death knell to his theories. Did such absence of scientific proof cause these men to abandon such foolishness? Of course not. They could not and still cannot prove anything according to the scientific method. But their commitment to evolutionary theory was and is steadfast. Did I not say that all evidences must be interpreted and that we filter such evidences through our worldview, which is our religious faith? Those who hate God will find any reason to deny him, even when it's sheer nonsense to do so. The proverb says wisdom personified, saying, quote, those who hate me love death. In so many ways, the antagonism against special creation is simply irrational fear. In 1967, some mathematical probability models were run to see the likelihood of life originating by chance. And when the models came back saying it was mathematically impossible, Someone raised the issue as to whether they should look at some models for divine special creation. At this point, the place erupted with people saying, no, no. It is astonishing the extent that men will go to in order to deny God and even to deny what they know in their hearts to be true. What are the basic tenets of Darwinism? One of the better books published in modern times, 1991, was Philip Johnson's book titled 
Darwin's Black Box. Johnson is a lawyer by profession, but very knowledgeable of the subject matter and was interested in examining how men argue their cases. His book created quite a stir in the biological world, causing many to rush out and try to refute it. Some of the following information is derived from some of Johnson's comments. And some of these comments by Johnson are, he says Darwin's classic book, Origin of Species, argued three basic propositions. One, first, species are not immutable, that is, unchangeable. Second, nearly all the diversity of life to cause all living things descended from a very small number of common ancestors, perhaps a single microscopic ancestor. And third, the most distinctive aspect of Darwinism was that this vast process was guided by natural selection, or, quote, survival of the fittest, that people used to think was guided by the hand of the Creator. So here was Darwin's argumentation. All organisms must reproduce. All organisms exhibit hereditary variations. Hereditary variations differ in their effect on reproduction, and therefore variations with favorable effects on reproduction will succeed, those with unfavorable effects will fail, and organisms will change. This is why Darwin valued the work of Malthus on population. Darwin believed that the fittest individuals in the population would survive and leave the most offspring. While it is conceivable that some variations may survive in a population, there are some major issues that need to be addressed. For example, we have dog breeders who, who, with intelligence, can breed certain highly specialized breeds of dogs, but they're still dogs. Also, the most highly specialized breeds, when put into the wild, quickly perish, and the survivors in a few generations revert back to the original wild type. The reality is that natural selection tends towards what we call stasis, the maintaining of a particular kind. Darwinism claimed that all of life, in its incredible complexity, and with the vast variety of life forms, all arose from inorganic material. That is, inorganic matter somehow gave rise to organic matter, and then this organic matter somehow evolved into a living sing single cell that began to self-replicate. Now, how inorganic matter could become organic and living matter is a complete mystery to evolutionists. But one thing they're sure of, God could not have done it. According to Darwinism, time plus chance equals a miracle. Although they would not use that term miracle, of course, this miracle is not something that God does, but something that occurs randomly. To put it in the words from Steven Spielberg's movie, Jurassic Park, quote, life just finds a way. Now, the chance formation of a living single cell from inorganic matter is absurd. Darwin's understanding of the human cell was so elementary, to say the least, compared to what scientists now know of the complexity of just one human cell. During, during Darwin's day, scientists had no idea of what type or quantity 
of information was embedded in a cell. Darwin just assumed it was elementary. What scientists now know, the human cell, 150 years post-Darwin, is simply astounding. The nucleus of the cell contains thousands of carefully codified instructions called genes. This genetic code has to be translated, transported, and reproduced. This genetic instruction has no mass, length, or width, but this genetic code is conveyed by matter. And I have been only addressing the nucleus of the human cell, not to mention the other phenomenal aspects of that cell. How could such complex coded information evolve? And there is no evidence at all that this genetic information is improved by mutations. Each human DNA molecule contains some 3 billion genetic letters and, incredibly, the error rate of the cell after all the molecular editing machines do their job is only one copying mistake called a point mutation for every 10 billion letters. As physicist and chemist Jonathan Safari or Safarti explains, the amount of information that can be stored in a pin's head's volume of DNA is equivalent to a pile of paperback books 500 times as high as the distance from the Earth to the Moon, each with a different yet specific content. Putting it another way, while we think that our new 40 gigabyte hard drives are advanced technology, a pinhead of DNA can hold 100 million times more information. If we could summarize in general terms the fundamental elements of Darwinism, we could express it in modern terms as follows. First, variation in modern term terminology is called mutation. Mutations are randomly occurring genetic changes, but they are virtually always harmful when they are large enough to become visible. Evolutionists insist that the process of survival continues in the trait mutation eventually spreading throughout the species, and then it becomes the basis for further cumulative improvements over succeeding generations. Supposedly, enormous complex organs and patterns of adaptive behavior can be processed by these incremental or tiny cumulative parts. Darwin knew nothing of mutations, as scientists now know. In fact, because Darwin believed in the simplicity of the information of the cell, he derived a theory known as pangenesis. Darwin thought this is how changes were passed on to future generations. Darwin said, quote, It is universally admitted that the cells or units of the body increase by subdivision or proliferation, retaining the same nature, and that they ultimately become converted into the various tissues and substances of the body. But besides this means of increase, I assume that the units throw off minute granules, which are dispersed throughout the whole system, that these, when supplied with proper nutrient, multiply by self-diffusion and are ultimately developed into units like those from which they are originally derived. These granules may be called genules. They are collected from all parts of the system to constitute the sexual elements. And... Their development in the next generation forms the new being, but they are likewise capable of transmission in a dormant state to future generations. 
and may then be developed. End of quote from Darwin. But Darwin now wanted to include in his scheme the possibility of the inheritance of some limited acquired characteristics, which would place him in much agreement with Lamarck's view of acquired characteristics. The question arose, in what sense were these variations passed on to future generations? Darwin thought that these variations caused by direct actions due to changing conditions directly affected certain body parts. This, in turn, caused these affected body parts to throw off modified gemmules, which in turn were transmitted to offspring. Darwin's view of gemmules and Lamarck's views of acquired characteristics have now been discarded due to the work of Gregor Mendel. Mendel's careful works indicated that environmental effects on organisms are not passed on as information to their offspring. Mendel recognized the constancy of traits. He saw that traits are reorganized independently when passed on to offspring, and the amount of variation is limited by the information in the parents. Regarding mutations, these are randomly permanent changes in the DNA sequence of a gene. Mutations result from unrepaired damage to DNA or RNA genomes, typically caused by radiation or chemical mutagens from errors in the process of replication, or from the insertion or deletion, or deletion of segments of DNA. One reason why mutations are a glaring problem for organic evolution is that mutations do not substantiate the notion of advancement in complexity. Most mutations cause serious problems in organisms. When the mutations are large enough to show themselves they are virtually always harmful. Another important fact about mutations is that the mutations act only as existing genes, but natural selection cannot explain the origin of genes. For one, there was no information for natural selection to act upon. Mutations do not add information on an organism's genome, that is, genetic code. For macroevolution, meaning complex changes, creating entirely new creatures, for that to occur would require thousands upon thousands of added information to change the simplest of cells into complex cells that would result in entirely new creations, such as fish becoming amphibians, or a reptile becoming a bird. Mutations may affect the degree of a trait, but they do not produce new traits. The French zoologist Pierre Grasset concluded that the results of artificial selection provided powerful testimony against Darwin's theory. He said, quote, In spite of the intense pressure generated by artificial selection over a whole millennium, no new species are born. A comparative study of serum, hemoglobins, blood proteins, inner fertility, etc. proves that the strains remain within the same specific definition area that is not a matter of opinion or subjective classification, but a measurable reality. The fact is that selection gives tangible form to and gathers together all the varieties a genome is capable of producing, but does not constitute 
an innovative evolutionary process, end of quote. In other words, there is a certain diversity that can be manifested within a basic kind, such as all the differing dog kinds, cat kinds, bird kinds, etc. But no new formation of differing creatures, like amphibians becoming reptiles, and then reptiles becoming birds. When faced with this dilemma, Darwinists attribute the inability to produce new species to lacking sufficient time. Given a few hundred million years, anything can happen. And again, taking the, the line from the movie Jurassic Park, well, life just finds a way. This brings us, of course, to the most critical question. What is the scientific evidence that actually confirms that this process of macroevolution took place? Basically, the answer to this question is nothing. By nothing, we mean there is no evidence that new organs or other major changes evolved, not even minor changes that bring about new kinds of creatures. You've heard about missing links. Missing links are basically the absence of all the transitional forms from one major kind of creature to another. For example, there are no missing links living or in the fossil record showing this gradual transmutation of creatures. This is a real embarrassment to evolutionists. But of course, it doesn't matter because by a priori reasoning, evolution just had to take place in their thinking. Even the renowned naturalist, Louis Agassiz, in 1860, wrote the following in the American Journal for 1860. He said, quote, Until the facts in nature are shown to have been mistaken by those who have collected them, and that they have a different meaning from that now generally assigned them, I shall therefore consider the transmutation theory as a scientific mistake, untrue in its facts, unscientific in its method, and mischievous in its tendency, end of quote. For Darwinism to be true, one must establish how these variations came about. But even then, it is one thing to see variations within certain kinds of creatures, what some call microevolution, but it's an entirely a different thing to postulate how natural selection accounts for the existence of entirely new creatures, such as invertebrates, invertebrates, evolving into vertebrates, fish evolving into amphibians, amphibians evolving into reptiles, reptiles evolving into birds, and finally certain mammals evolving into man. The difference between the reproductive systems of amphibians and reptiles is monumental. Amphibians must return to the water to lay their eggs. These eggs go through a type of pupa stage. Reptiles do not need water for reproduction. They lay their eggs on land with hard shells. The young that hatch are miniatures of the adult, as opposed to amphibians. How did all of this evolve by gradual modifications, ensuring the survival of the fittest? And let's consider one of my favorite topics, butterflies and moths. I used to collect these as a youth. The process of metamorphosis is simply mind-boggling. And it constitutes, in my opinion, an act of the Creator as a in-your-face, Mr. Evolution.
from an egg of a butterfly or a moth, a caterpillar emerges that is elongated, having multiple legs. This creature has a ravenous appetite, eating constantly, with mandibles that chew the food, primarily leaves. Then, at a given point, this caterpillar goes into a pupa stage. The caterpillar spins this encasing around itself, a chrysalis for a butterfly and a cocoon for a moth. And then, incredibly, the caterpillar completely dissolves into a gel-like substance where everything is being reconstituted. At the precise time, a butterfly or a moth emerge. These are creatures that look nothing, nothing like the caterpillar. These are magnificently beautiful creatures with wings of all things. Instead of crawling on the ground with multiple legs, they have six legs and three body parts, a head, a thorax, and an abdomen, and they fly. Their means of eating is not by mandibles, but by a proboscis, a long body part that sucks liquid. This metamorphosis, transformation that is, in a short period of time is absolutely spectacular, to put it mildly. And we are supposed to believe, according to Darwinism, that this kind of thing happened gradually over millions of years through an infinite number of small modifications. It's utterly ridiculous. It constitutes the most flagrant form of outright rebellion against God. The monumental leap that Darwinism demands is how could all these parts change in unison as a result of chance mutation. Fundamentally, Darwinism is equivalent to a miracle. For Darwin's view to take place, he had to explain every complex characteristic or major transformation from one creature to another as the cumulative product of many tiny steps. Darwin adamantly argued, quote, this is a quote from Darwin, he said, I would give nothing for the theory of natural selection if it requires miraculous additions at any one stage of descent. If so, I would reject the theory as rubbish. I would give nothing for the theory of natural selection if it requires miraculous additions at any one stage of descent. End of quote. Darwin expressed it further in his own words when he said, quote, Natural selection can act only by the preservation and accumulation of infinitesimally small inherited modifications, each profitable to the preserved being. End of quote. In fact, Darwin said, quote, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. End of quote. Some admissions, aren't they? So we could say that Darwin's whole theory rested upon the proof that the transition of one distant creature to another, that is, macroevolution, had to be by an infinite number of small modifications due to mutations. But we must keep in mind that the term mutation was not used by Darwin. As noted earlier, Darwin advanced the notion of pangenesis, which essentially was a form of Lamarckianism. The term neo-Darwinist best represents what most modern evolutionists are today. 
Neo-Darwinism is the modern synthesis of Darwinian evolution through natural selection with Mendelian genetics. Neo-Darwinism also tweaks Darwin's ideas of natural selection. It distances itself from Darwin's hypothesis of pangenesis as a Lamarckian source of variation, a view that has been totally discredited by today's scientists. For Darwinism, there was even a more pressing problem. Many organs require an intricate complex of complex parts to perform their functions. It is known as the reality of irreducible complexity. The evolutionist Jay Gould saw the problem. He said, what good is 5% of an eye function? The human eye is an incredible organ. For an eye to function properly, it demands the presence of all its parts working together in order for a creature to see. Moreover, the eye works directly in conjunction with the brain via the optic nerve. How did all of these absolutely necessary minute transmutations evolve simultaneously and then get passed on to succeeding generations? Where are the living creatures demonstrating this transition? Where are the creatures in the fossil record with all of these intermediate transitional life forms with some partial eye formation? They're not there. In fact, where are all the living organisms with partial wing development and those in the fossil record with partial wing development? All the parts of a wing need to be there for a creature to fly. And even then, there must be radical anatomical changes in the rest of the creature so that it can fly. The very premise of Darwinism is that these transitional forms are gradual in their evolution which means that they don't come all at once, and these transitional forms must be superior to the former creature to ensure survival of the fittest. Imagine the supposed evolution of a reptile into a bird with all of the incredibly gradual transitional forms. How is a creature with a 20% developed wing dragging it along more fit to survive? Any predator would quickly have this monstrosity of a creature for its lunch that day. The essence of all Darwinian thought is utterly absurd. The human cell is one incredible and vast complex entity where everything has to work precisely together for even a cell to function. And we are not even talking about tissue differentiation that combines to form organs that must all function together. The human body, for example, is one incredibly complex interrelationship of many organ systems that must work in tandem to one another in order for us to function the way that we do. This is why any reasonable person knows how ludicrous it is to say that complex creatures evolved by chance by an infinite number of small modifications. As Darwin said, if it could be shown how complex organs come into existence apart from these numerous successive modifications, then his theory was but rubbish. Well, Mr. Darwin, your theory is rubbish. And Mr. Theistic Evolutionist, who base your views on the validity and the factuality of evolution, your view is rubbish as well and is a sinful compromise to the Christian faith. As the psalmist says in Psalm 139, verse 14, it says, 
For thou didst form my inward parts. Thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was hidden from thee when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written. The days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are thy thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! So ends the reading of God's precious word. In college as a Christian, I took a class on embryology, and I was often utterly astonished, stopping to praise God. From the union of the sex chromosomes in this microscopic fertilized egg, all the DNA code to form a unique human being is there. In nine months, we have the incredible summation of God's handiwork. Every cell has to go to the right place at the precise time to form an organ to, pro- to develop properly. How do heart cells know where to go to form a heart? How do brain cells know where to go to form a brain, etc., etc.? From this one fertilized egg, everything is put in motion in astounding complexity. And get this, normally a female's body's immune system would recognize a foreign entity and send killer T-cells to attack the invader. But guess what? When a mother's immune system interacts with the embryo cells, somehow the killer T-cells of the mother cannot recognize the proteins of the fetal cells and do not attack it. I personally call this the Klingon cloaking device of the baby. By the way, so much for the idea that a baby is part of the mother's body to do with however she pleases is touted by the abortionists. Oh, the baby shares some DNA from the mother, but the baby is not the mother's body. Darwin was particularly concerned to avoid the need for any saltations, which means a sudden new type of organism appearing in a single generation. Another term for saltation is what we call Systemic macro mutations. Systemic means affecting the whole body, and macro mutation is a major mutation, not a micro mutation being minor. Living creatures are unbelievably intricate entities of interrelated parts, and these parts are very complex, which all evolved via saltations. Saltation is a fancy word simply meaning a sudden appearing. An example of a systemic macromutation would be the development of a wing in a generation. There is no question that creationists ready believe Darwinism to be, uh, to be rubbish. But committed evolutionists, especially in the 20th century, have expressed their own doubts and have advanced their own speculations regarding the mechanism of evolution. One such individual was Richard Goldsmith of the University of California at Berkeley. Goldsmith's views have been properly dubbed, quote, the hopeful monster theory. Goldsmith insisted that Darwinism could account for nothing more than variations with certain species. Still wanting to maintain belief in some form of evolution, 
Goldsmith says that evolution must have occurred via single jumps through micro mutations. While admitting that most of these maladapted monsters could not survive, he believed on rare occasions there would be a lucky accident, a hopeful monster that could survive and reproduce. But let's think about this for a moment. If this lucky accident occurred, it is tantamount to the same thing as, quote, special creation, is it not? The sudden appearance of a creature. But there's another immense problem. If this hopeful monster just appeared, how did it reproduce? It demands another incredibly lucky accident of the opposite sex appearing at the same time. Wow. Isn't Mother Nature so lucky? She not only wins the Mega Millions lottery, but she wins the Powerball lottery all on the same day. Goldsmith speaks about his rejection of Darwinism when he said, quote, I need only to quote Schindelwolf in 1936, the most progressive invest investigator known to me. He shows by examples from fossil material that the major evolutionary advances must have taken place in single, large steps. He shows that the many missing links in the paleontological record are sought for in vain because they have never existed. The first bird hatched from a reptilian egg. The facts of greatest general importance are the following. When a new phylum, class, or order appears, there follows a quick explosive in terms of geological time, diversification so that practically all orders or families known appear suddenly and without any apparent transitions. Moreover, within the slowly evolving series, like the famous horse series, the decisive steps are abrupt without transition. End of quote. So that was Goldsmith's hopeful monster theory. Well, let's discuss evolution in the fossil record. When we look at creationism and evolution with regard to the scientific evidence, the great winner in terms of the application of the principles of operational science is creationism. As I've reiterated several times, all evidence must be evaluated and will always be evaluated from the fundamental worldview of the interpreter. At the same time, both creationists and evolutionists have the they have the same facts and science to observe. We both observe present life forms. We both can observe what we find in the fossil record. Already, evolution has been found completely wanting in terms of the observation of living organisms. There is the utter nonsense, or we could say there is the utter absence of all the intermediate life forms that Darwinism contends that must have evolved. Even Darwin has admitted this. Therefore, Darwinism gets a big, fat F in this regard. With respect to the fossil record, Darwinism gets another big, fat F. The fossil record demonstrates overwhelming evidence for special creation, and evolutionists have always known this. But, of course, has this caused them to accept creationism? Well, of course not. The unbeliever hates God. And he will always suppress the truth. 
of general revelation in unrighteousness. The fossil record was always a major problem for Darwin and all other evolutionists. It was a problem for even Thomas Huxley. The fossil record is a glaring refutation to Darwin's theory. Darwin claimed that the great lack of evidence from the fossil record was only because the fossil record was incomplete. Oh, how tragic. But how convenient. Right? Where were the leaps of transitional forms? This lack of evidence was very troubling to Darwin's bulldog, Thomas Huxley. In private, Huxley warned Darwin that a theory consistent with the evidence in the fossil record would have to allow for some big jumps, a view that Darwin vehemently denied. Even Darwin posed the question to himself when he said, quote, Why, if species have descended from other species by insensibly fine gradation, do we not everywhere see innumerable transitional forms? Why is not all nature in confusion instead of the species being as we see them, well-defined? End of quote. Well, I agree with you, Darwin. That's been always one of my major objections. And you understood it, but you still denied God. So Darwin understood the great problem. The fossils really don't prove his theory, and neither, neither do living forms prove his theory. Darwin said that there should be a great number of intermediate and transitional links. Darwin said, quote, The main cause, however, of innumerable intermediate links, not now occurring everywhere throughout nature, depends on the very process of natural selection, though which new varieties continually take the place of and supplant their parent forms. But just as in proportion as the process of extermination has acted on an enormous scale, so must the number of intermediate varieties which have formerly existed be enormous. Why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely gradated organic change. And this perhaps is the most obvious and serious objection which can be urged against the theory. The explanation lies, as I believe, in the extreme imperfection of the geological record. End of quote from Darwin. Well, there you have it. Darwin offers the best reputation to his own theory. Where are the missing links? There had to be an enormous number, he says. Therefore, the geological record should be replete with evidence of all these extinct transitional forms. But the fossil record doesn't show it. Darwin admits that such absence of the fossil record is the most obvious and serious objection to his theory. Now, these are Darwin's words, mind you. Notice how weak and inconvenient his explanation of the lack of fossil evidence is. He says it's the extreme imperfection of the geological record. How is this an explanation for his theory? Let's rephrase what Darwin is admitting. He says the fossil record with its lack of transitional forms is very bad, but that's only because the fossil record is so imperfect. Is this responsible science observation? Hardly. Darwin is essentially saying, just because the evidence is not there doesn't mean it never happened. 
It essentially is an argument from silence, which, by the way, is no argument at all. On the other hand, the creationist would say, the reason there are no intermediate transitional forms in the fossil record is because the evidence shows they never existed. The fossil record shows exactly what spatial creation purports. God made each creature after its own kind. 140 years after the publication of Origin of Species, the evidence is still demonstrating the falsity of Darwin's theory. Professor Steve Jones of the University College London published an updated version of Darwin's Origin of Species in 1999. The fossil records still pose the same problem. Professor Jones states, quote, The fossil record, in defiance of Darwin's whole idea of gradual change, often makes great leaps from one form to the next. Far from the display of intermediates to be expected from slow advance through natural selection, many species appear without warning, persist in fixed form, and then disappear, leaving no descendants. Geology assuredly does not reveal any fine graduated organic chain, and this is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against the theory of evolution. End of quote. Even the renowned atheist of our time, Richard Dawkins, has said this about the fossil record, quote, The Cambrian strata of rocks, vintage about 600 million years, are the oldest ones in which we find most of the major invertebrate groups, and we find many of them already in advanced state of evolution, the very first time they appear. It is as though they were just planted there, without any evolutionary history. Needless to say, this appearance of sudden planting has delighted creationists. End of quote from the renowned atheist. The prominent evolutionist of the 20th century, Stephen Gould, described the fossil record as, quote, he said, the extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record as the trade secret of paleontology, end of quote. In other words, the evolutionists have always known that the fossil record is not on their side. Stephen Stanley of Johns Hopkins has said, quote, It is doubtful whether in the absence of fossils the idea of evolution would represent anything more than an outrageous hypothesis. The fossil record and only the fossil record provides direct evidence of major sequential changes in the Earth's biota, end of quote. D.M. Ropp, in his article titled, Conflicts Between Darwin and Paleontology, states, quote, Darwin's theory of natural selection has always been closely linked to evidence from fossils. And probably most people assume that fossils provide a very important part of the general argument that is made in favor of Darwinism. D.M. Ropp, in his article titled, Conflicts Between Darwin and Paleontology, states, quote, Darwin's theory of natural selection has always been closely linked to evidence from fossils, and probably most people assume that fossils provide a very important part of the general argument that is made in favor of Darwinian interpretations of the history of life. Unfortunately, this is not strictly true. The evidence we find in the geological record is not nearly as compatible with Darwinian natural selection 
as we would like it to be. Darwin was completely aware of this. He was embarrassed by the fossil record because it did, did not look the way he predicted it would. And as a result, he devoted a long section of his origin of species to an attempt to explain and rationalize the differences. Darwin's general solution to the incompatibility of fossil evidence in his theory was to say that the fossil record is a very incomplete one. Well, we are now 120 years after Darwin, and the knowledge of the fossil record has been greatly expanded. We now have a quarter of a million fossil species, but the situation hasn't changed much. End of quote. The fossil record is clearly on the side of creationism, demonstrating the sudden appearance of fully developed times as we presently observe today. The fossil record points to special creation. The missing links are still missing. We then get this forthright admission from Niles Elridge. He says, quote, We paleontologists have said that the history of life supports the gradual adaptive change, all the while really knowing that it does not. End of quote. That's some admission, isn't it? In other words, the evolutionists have said we've always known that the fossil record doesn't support us. Well, the following statement is quite some admission from British zoologist Mark Ridley when he states, quote, The gradual change of fossil species has never been part of the evidence for evolution. In the chapters on the fossil record in The Origin of Species, Darwin showed that the record was useless for testing between evolution and special creation, because it has great gaps in it. The same argument still applies. In any case, no real evolutionist, whether gradualist or punctuation, uses the fossil record as evidence in favor of the theory of evolution as opposed to special creation. End of quote. In all of their vitriolic attacks on creationists, for living by faith in some ancient myth accounts in the Bible, evolutionists have not supplied a consistent theory proven by the scientific method that macroevolution has ever occurred, but they have put great faith in their own philosophical presuppositions. Well, let's talk about an incredible topic and a most interesting one. Alien seeding. We put, when pushed to the wall, evolutionists must admit that their view of origins is a philosophic commitment to a worldview that will not, under any circumstances, admit that the evidence points to special creation. They will not have God in the equation, but some have, as incredible as it may sound, advocated that the mystery of life or originating on earth is due to alien seeding. That's right. And one may be very surprised at who has advocated this idea of alien seeding. One such advocate was Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of the DNA molecule. His co-discoverer was James Watson. In 1962, they both won the Nobel Prize in Medicine for their discovery. In 1973, Francis Crick 
together with British chemist Leslie Orgel, proposed the theory known as directed panspermia. As one could imagine in such a discovery, Crick found it impossible to think that the complexity of the DNA molecule as the means of transferring hereditary material could have evolved naturally. I would say this was a good deduction based on the glory of God in his incredible universe. But did Crick give God the glory? Absolutely not. He did not praise the Creator, but professing to be wise, he became a fool. And what was his foolishness? Instead of giving God the credit for supernaturally creating life, Crick proposed the following. He said that the building blocks of life could have been loaded in a spaceship by a very advanced civilization facing annihilation or hoping to see planets for later colonization. The idea is that a payload of a ton of microorganisms, 10 to the 17th power, could be put into these spaceships and sent out toward clusters of new stars being formed. Where planets existed that could sustain life, these spaceships would land and distribute its payload of the building blocks of life. Well... A view put forth by the co-founder of the DNA molecule. This sounds like a quite interesting episode right out of Star Trek, doesn't it? In fact, come to think about it, there was a Star Trek movie based on a similar concept. It was the Star Trek II movie that I saw called The Wrath of Khan. In this movie, the Khan, at the end of the movie, activated the Genesis device, which causes the gas in the nebula to reform into a new planet sustainable of life. Spock, who has died heroically, has his body shot into space, and it happens to land on this planet, where eventually he comes back to life. But then that's another Star Trek movie. Now, do you think Crick was crazy? How about the world's most renowned atheist and hater of Christianity, Richard Dawkins? Ben Stein gets Dawkins to propose how life could have started on Earth. It's as just as absurd as Crick's view. When Stein was pressing Dawkins as to whether there was some kind of intelligent design that was behind the origin of life, Dawkins said that it is quite intriguing to think that some Higher intelligent life in the universe seeded the earth. But then Dawkins incredibly said that this higher intelligence could not have simply come about by spontaneous generation. So, Dawkins admits that life just doesn't happen necessarily, but there is a likely intelligence behind it all. But it can't be God. Well, just like I've said, and I mentioned in other messages, what Romans 1.18 and following says, it remains ever true. Men will suppress the truth and unrighteousness of what they see in the creation. And professing to be wise, they will become fools and exchange the glory for the creation, the creature. Before I end this message, let's discuss for a moment what is a biblical kind? 
I must address a very important point. What do we mean when we speak about species or kinds? Creationists have often been criticized for denying that there is any kind of changes in creatures. The father of modern taxonomy was an 18th century Swedish botanist, physician, and zoologist, Carolus Linnaeus, who developed a classification system based upon physical characteristics. Linnaeus' system is still the fundamental basis for taxonomy. In the Linnaean system, similar species are grouped into a genus, similarly genera into a family, similar families into an order, similar orders into a class, similar classes into a phylum, and similar phyla into a kingdom. He is known for the, his binomial nomenclature, the combination, that is, of a genus name and a second term, which together uniquely identified each species of organism. While evolutionists use Linnaeus' system of classification, most people probably do not know that Linnaeus believed in a type of fixity of species, meaning that organisms do not change over time. This would make him a non-evolutionist. In fact, Linnaeus based his work on natural theology, where God had created the universe and that man could understand that divine order by studying the creation. He wrote in a preface to Systema Naturae the following, quote, The earth's creation is the glory of God as seen from the works of nature by man alone. End of quote from Linnaeus. Linnaeus' view of fixity of species was modified by him later in his life due to his plant breeding experiments that showed that hybrids were evidence that species have remained exactly the same since creation. Linnaeus then explained what he meant by this hybridization. New organisms were all derived from the primary species, original kinds, and were a part of God's original plan because he placed the potential for variation in the original creation. Creationists would allow a certain diversification within the biblical kinds. Therefore, we would argue for the fixity of kinds. Some creationists refer to this as microevolution. While I would agree with this, I am so bothered by the notion of evolution and how it is used, I prefer to refer to this process of microevolution Evolution as the process of natural selection showing certain changes, but within the boundaries of the created kinds. I referred to the Bible verse, 1 Corinthians 15.39 in previous messages, where it says, quote, All flesh is not the same flesh, for there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another flesh of fish. End of quote from God's precious word. This New Testament passage corresponds with the creation account as we find, for example, in Genesis 1.24, which says, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. End of quote from the Bible. Natural selection can select certain traits that may make certain organisms better fit to survive in a population than others, but they decrease the genetic information, not increase it. We could dub this change as 
speciation. We can talk about the dog kind, or the cat kind, or the fish kind, or the amphibian kind, or the reptile kind, or the bird kind, or the mammal kind. Well, there is a certain speciation among the same kind. There is no modification of descent among the different kinds, commonly known as macroevolution. In other words, there is no type of changes that can transform an amphibian into a reptile. We do observe speciation among various kinds, but we do not see intermediate forms consisting of the evolution of an amphibian into a reptile or a reptile into a bird. While Linnaeus would remain a speciation of certain species, he never would adopt a view that Darwin maintained. Regarding the notion of speciation, let's consider the speciation of various types of the dog kind. This would include wolves, coyotes, dingoes, and our modern dog kind. In this breeding among the dog kind, one could eventually breed a wolf to get to a chihuahua, but you cannot breed chihuahuas to get to wolves. This is what we mean by a loss of genetic information. So, natural selection, contrary to Darwin's belief, can never be the driving force evolution because it results in the loss of genetic information. Macroevolution that purports the evolution of molecules to man is impossible. It is a trustworthy statement that we understand the different use of the term species and kind in the history of the church. The English word for species comes directly from Latin. For example, a Latin version of the Bible in Genesis 1.24 would use the word species when it refers to kinds. John Calvin, in his commentary on Genesis 1, used the word species for kinds because he originally wrote in Latin. The theologian, Dr. John Gill, writing about the same time as Linnaeus, equates species and kinds in his note on Genesis 1.22 when he says, quote, With a power to procreate their kind and continue the species, as it is interpreted in the next clause, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas. The 18th century commentator Matthew Henry, commenting upon Genesis 2-3, uses species as kind, saying there would be no new species. The point is that species originally meant the biblical kind. In the late 1700s, the word species began to take on a new and more specific definition. As the scientific term gained popularity, this led to confusion. Hence, when theologians spoke of the fixity of species, meaning the fixity of biblical times, people thought, well, species did change. When they said this, they were thinking of the variation within a species. As I conclude this message, we should realize that evolutionists themselves have recognized the great problem with Darwinism. The view of macroevolution cannot be scientifically verified. Darwin couldn't do it, and neither have any others after him been able to succeed. Living organisms and the fossil record do not give scientific evidence for macroevolution, but it does point to special creation. Hence, evolution is no scientific fact. 
It is outside the parameters of operational science. It is not a fact. Science is not spoken definitively in the factuality of macroevolution. Evolution is a worldview. It's a religious faith held as tenaciously as the most ardent Christian holds to his belief in the Bible.